when I was a small child, picture the Dark Ages, you know, uh, dinosaurs roaming the earth. There was a time when I was one, so there you go. I still remember vividly uh, the day I had dinner at my next door neighbor's house. Uh, that I, uh, I was about five, maybe six. And I, you know, he had two, uh, he was roughly my age, just a year older than I was, and he had an older sister and an older brother that were teenagers. This was in the 60s. Um, and we were all having dinner together. And I don't know, his sister like asked me a question or something, and the way I answered it uh, just made everyone at the table laugh. And I felt foolish. And ever since then, that wounded space within me tries to make sure I never feel like a fool again, ever. Fast forward, short story, uh, not to be emulated, fortunately, there are no elementary school, well, there are no elementary school children in here. In fourth grade, I felt inappropriately called out by my fourth grade teacher who sent me into the hall. I left the building. I was, uh, I, I, you know, it was embarrassing. I felt foolish. She sent me in the hall. I go into the hall. I decided I wasn't staying in the hall. I left the building and walked around the whole rest of the day. Talk about a teacher's worst nightmare. <laughs> I can only imagine what Hannah would do if uh, Hannah is my daughter, who's a second grade teacher, if one of her children wandered away. This would be very bad. You know, and the, 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 the main thing that the uh, principal said to me eventually came back after school was out because I knew I needed a coat and I needed my, uh, you know, my book bag so I could take that home and pretend like nothing had happened. You know, imagining that mom and dad would not have any idea that I was not, uh, that I left school. Um, I don't like to feel foolish. Fast forward to this last three weeks. My computer at home is in the process, my laptop in the process of dying. And so then I fired up an older desktop that I had. Uh, it's in the process of dying. So I had to make some decisions about acquiring a new computer. First talking to my wife, what do you think if we acquire a new computer? Well, you know, this is a professional expense, so you should, you know, professionally expense it. Okay, that sounds good. Um, and so I decided to build one. And I, uh, you know, from scratch, it's been 15 years since I built my last one, so I did all my research. I've spent the last three weeks, two to three hours a day, carefully studying what the best motherboard is. I chose AMD as opposed to Intel because Intel is way overpriced. So, uh, you know, I went for the AMD Ryzen 9 3900X. You know, uh, because it has 12 cores and 24 hyper-threads. Man, that bad boy can rock! And for video editing, which is one of the main things I needed for it, needs more, more cores. If I were a gamer, I could handle less cores, but faster speed. Now you can say, oh great, James, you've gone off into the netherworld, and I have for a second, but the truth is, I didn't want to walk into Micro Center and buy the pieces and appear to be a fool. I don't like the feeling of foolishness so much so that sometimes I will choose not to do something rather than do it halfway. 
the perfectionist in me, I am recovering from. Now, then I read today's text. For the next four weeks in the month of February, we're doing something we don't often do at St. James anymore. I usually preach a series created by suggestions that you all make or that I feel called to. This week, we are looking, and the whole month of February, we're looking at texts that are from what is called the Revised Common Lectionary. And the Revised Common Lectionary is just a three-year cycle to try to make sure that you don't skip over parts of the Bible only to read your favorite parts. Because we all have favorite parts. Every week, I'm going to preach from 1 Corinthians 13, because that's my favorite part. Uh, and that's a great part. It's a great part. But you need to kind of branch out. You got the whole book. You ought to read some of it. So, having said all of that, I am going to be reading to you today from 1 Corinthians. And you'll understand why I told you the story about foolishness. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm beginning with verse 18 and reading through verse 31. That is today's Revised Common Lectionary reading from Paul's letters. For the message about the cross is foolishness. Oh, we've already got this. Let's just skip this passage altogether because it's already talking about something that makes me uncomfortable. For the message of the, about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews, for, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong. And if you read closely the subtitles and between the lines of this entire book, every time God chose someone, Almost without exception that I can think of in my mind, God chose the weak one. 
Now, in retrospect, we look back on many of these stories and we think, wow, that guy was a winner. That gal was a winner. God, of course, chose the winner. They didn't start out looking so much like a winner. Almost all throughout the Hebrew Bible and then the New Testament, look at who Jesus chose as disciples. Nobodies. Fishermen, uneducated, outsiders, to be the people he would teach his message to. Look at who God chose throughout the Hebrew Bible. David to be king. He wasn't even his old, the oldest in the family. The important things always go to the oldest. Ask me. I know. I'm the oldest. You know, a lot of responsibility rides there. But in those days, all the inheritance went to the oldest. David was like eighth in a line. Everybody thought everybody else looked more like a king than David. And before they could choose a king from, you know, his whole family, you know, Samuel has gotten everybody together and they look at everybody. Samuel looks at the oldest and says, oh, got to be him. He looks like a king. Nope. Second oldest. Oh, got to be him. Looks like a king. Nope. Third one. Nope. Fourth one. Nope. Fifth one. Nope. Sixth one. Nope. Seventh. Nope. Do you got any more sons? Because God sent me here. Yeah, the runt of the litter. He's out watching the sheep. You know, uh, it's not good for much else. But he's out watching the sheep. That was David. King David. Nobody. The least of these. That's who God chooses. Over and over again throughout the Bible, God chooses what is foolish, what is weak, what is broken, what is outside. And the danger of Christianity, and it has been, been the danger ever since we established it, is we get inside and we start thinking we've got to go to the least, last, and lost and share what we found. That we've got to take the substance of God that we've got from somewhere in this building, I don't know where you got it, and carry it out to those poor, least, last, and lost people. The least, last, and lost don't need us. We need them. We need the least, last, and lost to remind us that God chooses what is weak to shame the strong. Do you know in this last season in the NFL who God's favorite team had to be? The Bengals. Last. 2 and 14. Last. God goes for the bottom. God goes to the lowest. God goes always. God is like water flowing downhill. Because God reaches out to the bottom and reminds us all that there is no bottom. Whoever wins the Super Bowl today, who cares? Except for people who bet a lot of money on it. Or who think that, they're the tri that that's their tribe, whether it's San Francisco or Kansas City. Guess what? If you're not playing in the game, you didn't win. <laughs> if you're not playing, and even if you play in the game and you get injured and you have permanent brain damage from playing in the game, you didn't win. You may have gotten a ring to wear on your hand that someday, because of your traumatic brain injury, you're going to have to sell so you can afford to live. Is that what it means to win? You see, we have defined what it is to be a winner in this world. And God has said, that's not my kind of winner. 
My winner is weak. My winner is crucified. Doesn't that sound foolish? God taking the form of a human being and dying? Oh my gosh, God can't even get living right. He died on a, in an embarrassing way. It wasn't just like he got to be old, gave up the ghost. He was crucified in a public execution with criminals. And they mocked him. How foolish can you get? God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong. The least, the last, and the lost are the ones we need to remind us what it looks like, what it looks like to be on the edge. Because, you know, we always think God's in the middle of the power places. That's where we're convinced. How many times have I been sitting with people and said, I just don't get God. Why would God be born in the backwoods in Bethlehem? Why would God choose to let Jesus be born there? The incarnation, why? There were palaces. It could have been Caesar. He could have demanded that we believe. and We would have had no choice. God doesn't demand anything of you. Well, that's not completely true. But God wants you to choose. God makes it clear. You've got to choose love. You can choose not to love. You absolutely can. And you know why? Because love looks weak. Reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite movies of the 80s, Say Anything. Late one night, you know, John Cusack's character is at a gas and sip, sitting with these guys who are supposedly know everything about women. He's broken up with Ione Skye. I mean, you know, his heart is broken. And, uh, you know, uh, so he's, he's looking for wisdom from these guys. And one of them says, I was in love once. Got hurt real bad. One of his friends says, You're bringing me down! <coughs> and shuts him right up. Love can bring us down, especially when we take the risk and it fails. When we risk and it doesn't work out. When we put ourselves out there and someone steps on us. I'm never going to do that again. Never going to do that again. God kept putting God's self out there through the prophets, kept calling the lowest, the least, the broken in the Hebrew Bible, kept putting God's self on the line, telling us what we needed to know, inviting us to a deeper place. And no matter how many times God said, look at how I chose the last brother, the least brother, the least one, we kept imagining only the greatest, the strongest, the best, the fastest, the most amazing. Because that's human nature. And God said, get over yourself. 
All the things that you have estimated to be most important in this world are not. We don't deal with weakness well as a country. Perhaps as a world, but I can only speak as uh, an American. For the most part now, we warehouse our older citizens somewhere else. So we don't have to be reminded that one day that's going to be us. We like to, you know, my grandmother used to tell stories of how all of her parents and grandparents came home to die. They were never kept in the hospital away from everybody else. They died where they wanted to be. But see, that requires that you be willing to talk about death and that it might be imminent and that you have to be. And we don't talk about it because we imagine if we don't say it, it isn't true. If we avoid it, it goes away. I I'm sorry to tell you, if you're in this room, if you're online and hearing this, either in live or later on recorded, you're going to die. <laughs> this physical form will end. It will happen. Maybe when you least expect it or maybe, you know, after 107 years. I don't know. But the truth is, it's going to happen, and no matter how much we pretend, it's not weakness to die. It's not weakness to lose. You know, if you're big into the Super Bowl and you watch it tonight, one team is going to lose. And everyone's going to say, oh, losers. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, if you're going to rank it all by 32, they're number two. But someone, there's always got to be one winner. And with God, everybody wins. Oh, that's just not, that, we don't like that. We want it to be a meritocracy. We want those who read the Bible. I, I don't know about you, but I've already spent like three and a half hours reading the Bible and, and spiritual things today. Meritoriously, baby, I'm sliding right into heaven. I have arrived. I am there. And as soon as I think I've arrived, God says, <laughs> James, you idiot. <laughs> I love you. You're, you, you. You know you think you've arrived. But you'll wake up tomorrow and realize everything you thought was so sure about today and how much you had arrived today. You were wrong. And I love you in your wrongness, James. God loves you in your wrongness, in all your mistakes, and all the things you learn from. Every time you trip and fall down and get back up, God loves that. And if you're too weak to get back up, God loves that too. God loves you no matter what. There's nothing you can do earn it. It will always be a gift. And we don't do that well. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Well, yes, there is. And it's called God's love. And it is free for every single one of you. Now you get to choose whether you'll respond or not. And that seems awfully foolish for the God of the universe to give you a choice. God may not protect you from every bad thing that could happen in your life, but God will protect one thing and one thing for sure for you, and that is your ability to choose. No one can make you believe in God. No one can make you love God. No one can make you live like you love God. That's a whole other sermon to talk about that. Lots of people talk the talk about loving God. But when you watch their walk, you're like wondering, 
I don't know who they, which God they're worshiping, but it seems like a really mean, unhappy God that wants to channel a lot of pain on everybody else. God wants to invite us to say yes and then live the yes. But it'll always be your choice and my choice. But know this, as much as we've made it about individuals, every bad choice you make affects us all. If I understand the biblical message, if I understand who God is, every bad choice you make not only affects us all at St. James, it affects the entire universe. Maybe in infinitesimally small ways, but your bad choices affect us all. When you choose to believe a lie because it's more convenient for you, when you choose to tell a lie because it's more convenient for you, all of us are made less by that. All of us, not just you. It's only me. It's not hurting anybody when I lie. Yes, it is. It's the very fabric of love that makes the whole universe up. So, I want to invite you to something that is completely un-American. I want you to be weak. I want you to be foolish. I want you to love when it would be so much easier to choose hate. Or even worse, indifference. I want you to engage the person who says ugly things by saying something positive. By learning to love that which to you seems absolutely unlovable. I want you to remember that every person, no matter whom you meet, that person you see on the side of the road and that you run a little gamut through your head, you know, the one who's got a sign, homeless, vet, you know, please help kind of thing, the one you drive by and you make judgments about, it's probably not really a vet, probably not really homeless, probably doesn't really need this money. If I give it to him, he's going to buy alcohol. All these judgments that you use to justify yourself, just remember that's what it's about justifying yourself for not helping. It's not about what that person will do because you don't know. You don't. And maybe that person is there for no other reason than to remind you somehow, there but for the grace of God go you. There but for the grace of God go you. We need the least, the last, and the lost. So, your assignment this week. I thought I'd already given it to you. If you think you've arrived, get over yourself. Get over yourself. Realize that if you're convinced you've arrived as an insider in God's kingdom, that most likely you have not. <laughs> and maybe you need to start from scratch. If, however, you feel unlovable, broken, outside, the least of these, know that in this universe nothing less than love can name you. And God is always on the side of the weak, the broken, the lost, the alienated, those who feel most alone. God is on your side. Not my privileged side. Yours. You have so much to teach me person at the side of the road has so much to teach me when he's most broken, she's most broken. 